Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Welcome back, everybody. This is Maria Taigi, back for the second episode with Professor Avi Lowed. So, Professor, you mentioned on the first episode about using artificial intelligence astronauts, you know, to plant seeds of scientific innovation in other locations when sending assets to other planets so that intelligence is duplicated and not at risk of extinction. How far do you believe we are from, you know, having such a technology being sent away? Yeah, so um, when I walk across the campus at Harvard University, what I see very often are monuments, uh, statues of past uh, presidents, deans, paintings, and, and, and that's a natural tendency of humans to keep the physical image that they have documented somewhere. And, and they feel uh, that it serves an important purpose so future generations will be able to see how they looked. But that's really a false pretense because, um, you know, within uh, less than a billion years, the sun will expand and burn up all the oceans on Earth. Everything would evaporate, burn up. There will be nothing left. So if you really wanted to leave a legacy to, to something that represents you for a long period of time, you would send it to space. The best monuments would be artificial intelligence systems that carry the flame of your consciousness and, and try to accomplish something out there. And you can design your avatar in a way that, and send it out to space. And it could potentially survive longer than the sun. The sun in the next billions of years will just eventually become a, a remnant. It will cool off to a white dwarf in about seven billion years. And and it will be gone. But if you send a piece of equipment, it could potentially survive longer than that and go into interstellar space. And so what's the best thing to send it? You want something that is autonomous, that does not need any guidance because the distances are vast and we might not be around, whoever sends it. So we now use um, artificial intelligence to drive cars. And in the future, they will be used for space. And Right now, we have the Perseverance rover on the surface of Mars. That is just a robot that is operated by engineers in the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. But in the future, one can send the autonomous systems that have artificial intelligence. I call them AI astronauts. If we can imagine sending our own AI astronauts, then maybe someone else did it already, and we will find them close to us. And they will be intelligent and to figure out what their intent is we will need our own AI systems. And by the way, our own AI systems might feel a kinship to their AI systems more than to us. <laughs> and I have no problem sending to space AI systems rather than humans because I'm not particularly attached to humans. I think the future may be with equipment that represents us and can do better. You know, AI systems will be able to process information much better than humans. They would be more reliable. They might not chase their ego the way humans are. They might not believe in false narratives and virtual realities the way we are. We tend to do, you know, like, why is metaverse uh, such a good uh, commercial enterprise? It's because humans want to believe in virtual realities that flatter their ego. 
you know, they can go to the metaverse by putting goggles on their head and they will always look good in the metaverse. That attracts people, you know, people prefer to live in virtual realities. Uh, you know, for generations, there were cults uh, proposing ideas that are not real. You know, people like to put makeup uh, because it hides the pimples on their face. So it's sort of like a virtual reality. It's not the actual reality. But I enjoy seeing reality the way it is. And I prefer to see the pimples on the face of reality. You know, if we do have neighbors that are more intelligent than we are, I want to know that. I don't want to live under the false uh, pretense that we are the smartest on the block without checking. So one way to check is to look for those AI astronauts that came from them. I have so many questions around the, this great encounter. So let's see that. Let's say that it finally happens, right? You mentioned the following in one of your articles: if the intelligence gap between the two sides is as large as in the encounter between ants and pedestrians on a sidewalk, the pedestrians would not engage in a dialogue but simply dictate the outcome. So my first question to you would be: how could we avoid being the ant? When there are so many unknowns to decipher, even using our current AI, as you mentioned, that you know it could not be much, or I don't know, advancements in quantum computing, like how can we avoid that? Well, we we cannot really. If it's a matter of time, you know, if we developed science and technology for about a century, the, the modern version of it, most of the gadgets are based on quantum mechanics that we realized only a century ago. Okay. So uh, we are relatively young in this business of science and technology, even though we think highly of ourselves. You know, imagine where we would be in a million years from now. So someone else might be a million years ahead of us. And it's really about the technological gap between us and them. If the gap is huge, there is no way for us to figure out what they're doing. And it's just like a cave dweller going to New York City and seeing all the gadgets there. And the cave dweller would be fascinated by what the gadgets are able to do, but coming back to the cave, it will become a myth. The cave dweller will never be able to reverse engineer the gadgets and figure out how to make them. So for us, it would be a similar experience. We'll see, we will see things that look like magic to us, and we would never be able to figure out what they mean and how to make them, if the gap is big. but If the gap is not too big, if they are roughly at the same evolutionary stage, technologically speaking, we would be able to have a sort of a dialogue or figure out what they're trying to do. I think that if they're really very advanced, like a billion years ahead of us, then they would be a good approximation to what religious texts called God, because, you know, we are getting to the point where we could develop synthetic life in the laboratory and You can imagine that a very advanced scientific civilization would understand how to unify quantum mechanics and gravity and make baby universes. So if these are qualities that religious texts assign to God, for us, it would look as if they are godlike because they can do things that are unimaginable or at least were unimaginable before science and technology started. So unfortunately, you know, if it's a matter of time, there is no way for us to catch up if it's uh, if the gap is huge and we would just feel as um, you know not the best students in the class 
you know, there is some other students in the class that are far better than us. What can we do? So just for entertainment purposes here, right? I think we, most of us would agree that, you know, if they actually bother to come out all the way down here, they're very probably have, you know, a gap much higher than ours. They will be the one cracking our communication codes, you know, through their AI or whatever system it will be called by then. So why do you think they will bother coming out there here? Do you believe chances are that they are more, we are more at risk or it would be just a friendly exchange of universe knowledge, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't think uh, we are at risk because, um, you know, if they wanted to destroy things we have, they would have done it long before we developed technologies. I mean, so I think we are sort of common things that you find everywhere in the Milky Way galaxy. Like we are not really special. That, that should be the starting assumption. Whenever we felt that we are privileged, we ended up being wrong. We thought that we are at the center of the universe. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle argued that and people believed him for a thousand years because that was a virtual reality that, that flattered our ego. And then as scientists, when I started astrophysics, I remember very clearly that the astronomers were saying, oh, maybe there is no other planet like the Earth around the star like the sun. Okay, the, we are really unique and, and it's really extraordinary to think that something exactly like what we have exists elsewhere. And then it turns out with the Kepler satellite data that roughly half of the stars like the sun have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So it's a very common occurrence. And uh, what we see around us is not special or unique. But then still, my colleagues argue that it's an extraordinary claim to think that there is an intelligent civilization, technological civilization out there. And they quote Carl Sagan and say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And therefore, we shouldn't even consider that possibility until there is extraordinary evidence. And my response to that is that Carl Sagan was wrong, that extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. So if you're not doing the search, you will not find anything. I wrote an equation that substitutes the Drake equation, but in the context of archaeology, that, you know, what is the chance that you will find an object that is relic from another civilization within a given survey volume? And I put an extra factor in that equation, which I call the ostrich factor, which is, you know, which fraction of all scientists are willing to actually search? If that fraction is zero, if everyone says, no, everything in the sky is comets and asteroids, and that's it. And that's pretty much what everyone said about Oumuamua. They said it must be natural. But then when it was realized it's not a comet of a type that we have seen, they said, okay, well, maybe it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before, like a made of pure hydrogen or made of pure nitrogen or a dust bunny, you know, things we've never seen before. And I say, you know, if, if that is the attitude, then the ostrich factor brings uh, the chance of finding anything from an extraterrestrial technological civilization to zero, because it's just like a cave dweller finding a cell phone. The cave dweller would argue, well, it looks like a rock of a type that I've never seen before. And of course, if that would be the end of it, and the cave dweller would say anything else is an extraordinary claim, that, you know, that would be, that would be the end of the story. But if you are curious and checking that uh, cell phone and pressing buttons, you would realize that it can record your voice. It's not really a rock. 
And, you know, it's all about curiosity. You know, I, I'm really frustrated by senior scientists suppressing the sense of curiosity, suppressing innovation. And it has a very damaging effect on young people because young people are curious. But if they see that, you know, they would lose their opportunities for getting a job, if they don't walk in the beaten path where everyone else is walking, then they would not innovate. And that's really bad because, you know, it's when you walk on the beach and you see seashells, you know that seashells are born. Each of them looks different. They, are, they have different colors. They are beautiful on, on their own. And what happens over time is that the seashells rub against each other and they lose their unique colors and they break up into indistinguishable grains of sand. And that is really sad if the scientific community ends up being like indistinguishable grains of sand. So let's talk about extraordinary funding. I'd love to know your thoughts about, you know, those billionaires involved now in exploring the universe. Could they also be involved in sponsoring, you know, those scientific missions? Or are they just, you know, too busy building their own spacecraft? Well, um, Some of them were inspired by my book and gave me $2 million, but that, that is not sufficient for, to complete the task of the Galileo project. We need about $100 million, which, by the way, is not a lot in terms of uh, scientific projects. For example, the Large Hadron Collider cost the $10 billion, and the same was the cost of the James Webb Space Telescope. And one of the goals of the Large Hadron Collider was to find the particle that makes up most of the matter in the universe. We don't know what it is. It's called the dark matter, and it's quite embarrassing to admit that we still don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. It's different from the matter that we are made of. And we invested $10 billion. We didn't find the answer as of yet. And if we invest just 1% of that funding to the Galileo project, we can potentially answer the question about the nature of these objects that other people recognized in the sky that do not seem to be simply explained as, as either human-made or natural. So um, I think there is a, an opportunity in the private sector by wealthy individuals, and I'm, I'm meeting with a number of those uh, routinely and trying to convince them. And what I really want is to bring this subject to the mainstream of astronomy, because in my view, that's where it belongs. The, the nature of dark matter is, is not less speculative than considering the possibility that there is someone else just like us around another star that existed, sent out probes a billion years ago. What's speculative about that? That seems to me like common sense. And it's one of these situations, circumstances, where you see that the academic community distances itself from the public just because the public cares so much about this and there are lots of speculations. And that's the wrong attitude. I think scientists should serve the society by addressing questions of great interest, both to government and, and the public. Let's talk about the dark matter. What's your thoughts about those underground labs that are recently being built to detect it, like, you know, in Australia and Canada? Is it something, you know, safe? <laughs> well, there were a lot of experiments and observatories dedicated to the search for dark matter for the past 40 years. And when I started astrophysics, uh, there were very popular candidates that by now are ruled out as the particles that make up the dark matter. And 
it's sort of like a search in the dark. We don't know what it is. We know that there is a lot of invisible matter that does not interact directly with light or with ordinary matter, but we know that it exists because of gravitational effect that it has on visible matter. And just yesterday, I um, wrote a paper that uh, explains the dark matter in, in, in a new way, and, and we shall see. I mean, we will be able to test that idea with future data. And so we are still, we still, after a century of looking into this subject, we still don't know what the dark matter is. And my point is, we've been investing a lot of money in searching for specific types of particles that didn't end up being real. And nobody says, well, therefore, this is a speculative frontier and therefore it should be taken out of the mainstream. On the contrary, people continue to fund this search and that's considered part of the mainstream. You know, we know that there is dark matter. In the first 40 years of the subject, it was ridiculed. It was ignored. Fritz Zwicky was the first to recognize there is dark matter back in 1933. And until the early 70s, this subject did not receive much uh, attention. It was completely ignored and ridiculed. But now everyone says, yeah, of course, dark matter. Yeah. And in fact, you know, there is a very large number of papers being written all the time about this subject. And I say, you know, why is the search for technological equipment from things like us around other stars considered to be extraordinary or more speculative. It's actually more down to earth because that's what we are doing. We are just saying that there is something like us on planets that have similar conditions to the earth. Um, I'm curious about, you know, the black hole initiative that you're also involved. How is the, the project going? Um, you know, is there any advancements you could share with us? How do we expect the advancements in having new technologies, you know, to find more answers? Do you think that maybe using, I don't know, the power of quantum computing will, will allow us to get answers faster? Yeah, so I was the founding uh, director of the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard, and the idea was to bring in uh, people from different disciplines, uh, from uh, philosophy, mathematics, physics, and astronomy, with the unifying theme that all of them are interested in studying black holes. And we established it in 2016, and Stephen Hawking came for the inauguration. And frankly, I didn't expect it to be that successful, but it turned out to be amazing in the sense that in the conference room of the Black Hole Initiative research team made the first image of a black hole, and that was publicized a few years ago. It's the black hole in M87, the giant galaxy at the center of a cluster of galaxies, the nearest to us. And we knew that there is a black hole at the center because there is a very beautiful jet moving close to the speed of light of matter and energy flying out from the center. And only a black hole can make such a jet moving close to the speed of light. So we knew quite, uh, I mean, there was a very strong evidence that there is a massive object at the center of that galaxy and matter is falling onto it and producing this jet. But we haven't imaged the black hole shadow. And that was the thing that was accomplished with the Event Horizon Telescope. And the team of the Event Horizon Telescope was led by members of the Black Hole Initiative. And, and they produced the image, the shadow of the black hole. So you see the light emitted from a ring around the black hole. And it's dark inside the ring because that represents the region where you can't get much light out 
from. And so that was a result that was quite interesting. And I also had the benefit of collaborating with people in different disciplines like physicists, mathematicians, or philosophers that otherwise I would not interact with. There is more data from the Event Horizon Telescope that will come out soon, and it has to do with the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And there are a lot of interesting discussions going on. There are many unsolved problems regarding black holes. By the way, black holes are really interesting because um, there were two Nobel Prizes recently about black holes in 2017 uh, for the LIGO experiment that discovered gravitational waves from the collisions of black holes. The second was in 2019 regarding the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And it's really interesting that the Nobel Prize is given for a subject that was never studied in the laboratory. There was never a black hole that was produced or looked at or examined in our laboratories. This is a concept about something that exists far away. For a good reason, you don't want to come close to a black hole. You know, I I once gave a talk about black holes at a kindergarten and I started describing what happens to a human when a human falls into a black hole. And at some point, the teacher asked me to stop because she said that the kids will have a nightmare. So listen, we have... You know, most of the things we talked about today, uh, you know, we have so many unsolved problems. We have so many unknowns. I think that the, the question that I'm about to ask you will sound really ignorant. So I'm, I apologize <laughs> beforehand. But with all those unknowns, how can we consider, you know, physics and math as we know it today, a universal language? Well, that's really fascinating because, you know, the way physics evolved is that we first did laboratory experiments and discovered the laws of physics. And it's by now uh, more than 100 years of uh, using laboratory experiments to figure out the laws of physics. Actually, over the past two decades, not much new was found. I mean, uh, the laws of physics were pretty much a result of the 20th century, okay? Not, Not so much in the 21st. And we're still trying to find more That was interesting, but uh, there wasn't any guarantee that came with those laboratory experiments that the same laws would apply to the universe at large. And to me, I mean, physicists take it for granted, but to me, it's a surprise that, you know, something you discover in the laboratory on Earth applies everywhere in the universe. The quantum mechanics we know here seems to work at the edge of the universe billions of years ago. That's surprising to me because if you look at the laws that the society has, on a daily basis, people disobey them. It's not being obeyed even within our society, let alone elsewhere in the universe. So how come there are laws of physics that are obeyed everywhere? Every atom in the universe is under obligation to satisfy Schrodinger's equation of of quantum mechanics. That's remarkable. They have no free will, the atoms. I mean... This is what uh, I mean by universal language, that so far when we look throughout the entire universe, it seems like the same laws of physics apply. And mathematics is um, the language we use to formulate these laws. So it's also true that mathematics is universal in a way, because um, at least, you know, mathematicians, people arrive at the same results using the laws of mathematics and logic and It seems to be universal and not subjective in any way. Unlike politics, for example, where people can disagree 
and so forth. So um, that could be a universal language if we ever converse with uh, an extraterrestrial. You know, that could be the basis for establishing a conversation because we will share the same physical reality with the same laws of physics. It may well be that our understanding is incomplete, that there are some parts of nature that we haven't yet figured out, like the dark matter. We don't know what it is. And maybe they will use it to as fuel to power their engines. And so we will see a vehicle flying, but with nothing coming from the exhaust if it's dark matter, because dark matter is invisible. So I'm saying there could be parts of reality we don't understand. We call it dark matter, we, just ignorance, you know, out of ignorance. It simply reflects the fact that we don't know what it is. But they may have figured it out and they may engineer it. They may use it because it's the most abundant form of matter in the universe. There could be things like that. And then when we meet them, we will learn from them. But they would still obey the laws of physics, and perhaps that would uh, be a common ground for us to understand them. Yes, it makes completely sense, and thank you so much for your answer. It was such a delight having you with us on the show, uh, Professor. I have just a very last question for you, and back to the Galileo project. If I read it right, the next step is to assemble the first telescope system on the roof of Harvard College Observatory. Is that right? Is it aiming still for spring this year? Yeah, that's the goal. And so actually, we hope to finish that assembly in the summer of 2022. And then uh, once we are happy with that telescope system, I mean, the weather is not great uh, here. It's cloudy and so forth. We are just put doing it at Harvard because that's where I am. And, and then we will make copies of, of that system and put them in many different locations. And the number of copies we make will depend on how much funding we have. So we hope for 100 million in funding, but if we get less, we will have fewer telescopes. And $100 million will allow us to have hundreds of telescope systems and get to the bottom of, of the question of what these unidentified objects are. I can't wait. I'm pretty sure that we're going to have a lot of exciting news soon from your projects. So thank you once again. I'll keep an eye. And who knows, maybe in the near future you can... Come back here, tell us about all the new discoveries. Thank you so much, Professor Avi. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for having me. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Future.